Hey, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. It's thoughtful conversation about the news of the day, picking at it from here and there, trying to hit the important ones. We address the existential threats to America, and I think there are several. Today we'll talk about some of those threats from abroad and from within with Michael Anton. He's a former senior national security official in the Trump administration, uh, and at present he's a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Bill. How are you, sir? Good. All right, let's go to China, and uh, everybody, Michael Anton is one of the heralds here. He's one of the people who, with Donald Trump, uh, has told us to think about China, talk about China. Yeah, too much talk about Russia, but finally, uh, with you and, and the president and a couple of others, uh, talk finally about China. Let's do it by, by piece, and you can rearrange my order or, or, or categories or, or distinctions, if you like. Militarily, how do we stack up with China? In terms of sheer numbers, theirs is bigger than ours. In terms of capabilities, ours is still ahead, but I think we're losing our, uh, from the experts I talked to say that we're losing our qualitative edge day by day. It slips away. Troops have really been much larger than us for a long time. Um, it's that they're catching up in terms of certain capabilities. But we also have to wonder, and there's no way to answer this question in advance, is like what kind of, if we ever get into a conflict with China, like what would it be about? So I happened to look this up the other day. I know the United States has 11 fully, you know, what we call fleet carriers, the big boys. Um, the Chinese have none. Uh, you can sort of kind of count that these two, this one carrier that they have and another that they're in the process of building. Even if you were to count them as fleet carriers, which I probably wouldn't, they still only have like two. Um, but uh, some of the military theorists will say, yeah, well, the, look, the fleet carrier is in 2020 what the battleship was in 1940, the center of the fleet. And we thought it was going to be all important. It turns out it plays almost no role in World War II. No, you know, and the carrier completely takes over. Is the is the day of the carrier over? Uh, I don't know, but those who say that it is will will say that the the carrier is a centerpiece of a military strategy. Depends on its invulnerability, and the Chinese have developed weapons to sink carriers that we we don't know how to stop. If that's true, then it doesn't matter that we have eleven and they have two or none, depending on how you want to count, right? Because if we either put one at risk or get sunk, which would be the first time since the Battle of Midway in June of 1942, or we know that they're in harm, and so we don't use them for their intended role anymore, then the balance is tipped. And okay. some, some of the smartest guys that I know think that's already happened. It's just happened without an, 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 you know, a live demonstration. Uh, aircraft? Aircraft, they're catching up to us uh, if they haven't already caught up um, in terms of uh, fighter technology, stealth technology. But again, you have to ask, is there ever going to be you know, the, the most advanced aircraft in the American arsenal, fighters on any, are, are intended to prevent bombers from entering the U.S. airspace, be able to shoot down any bomber, okay. and to make attack runs also, but fundamentally that. Well, do you expect the Chinese to send bombers to the U.S.? I don't necessarily. Um, do you expect us to get into dogfights with uh, Chinese uh, fifth-gen fighter jets? Mm, I suppose that there was a battle over Taiwan, but where are we going to stage those aircraft from? We'd be staging them again. You're not, not going to put a, you can't put an F-22 on an aircraft carrier, so we'd have to be flying the inferior F-35 off the carrier, and then is the carrier itself vulnerable? So you got to try to think through how would we get into an air combat battle with China and over what? And aside from something in Taiwan, or you know, I suppose a straight up I don't know, something highly ridiculous, but it could happen <laughs> theoretically. You know, what if the Chinese tried to invade? Japan. Well, then, then maybe you could see it, but it, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to wonder about what, what are all these systems going to be used for in the likely kinds of conflict that well, we, we may find ourselves in. But Taiwan is a real possibility. I mean, they're 
takeover of Taiwan, or invasion of Taiwan is a real possibility, is it not? Yeah, um, I, here's what no. I always thought about that. That well, no, it's a possibility. It be, it's become more likely in the sense that I think the Chinese have always figured that uh, time was on their side with regard to Taiwan, right? That the balance of all they had to they had to just wait, and the yeah. Taiwanese would come around and make a deal, and in the meantime, keep keep shifting the balance of power in China's favor in order to put pressure on the deal. Two things happened subsequently that, that, that throw this into doubt. One was the Hong Kong protests and the Chinese crackdown in Hong Kong. What that did was it um, it, it strengthened the the pro independence party in Taiwan, and it weakened the pro make a deal with China party in Taiwan. Because to those who want to say, well, let's make a deal, the opponents of the deal will say, well, what do you mean? Like Hong Kong made a deal, and then they reneged on it, and then when people protested and tried to stand up for their rights, they got this vicious crackdown. I don't want to be in that situation. And so all of a sudden, and I think the Chinese know that, and so they think, hmm. Is time really on our side now? And the second thing is, uh, apparently, from what I read, um, Xi Jinping is, you know, like all politicians, thinks about his legacy. And one of the things he would like is his legacy, from what I've read, is he wants to be the guy who resolves the Taiwan issue. Now, this has been on, I mean, this is a, it's hard for Americans to understand this, but this has been a huge sticking point for the regime since that regime took power in 1949. So we're talking about almost 75 years. Uh, I've just read, I just read the other day. I I wish I could. Oh yeah. I do remember the source. It was one of Litwack's books, but um, when, the Nixon people, Nixon himself and some of the Nixon people went to start just talking with the Chinese in the early 70s, both about supporting ending the war in Vietnam and other things. You know, they have, they get, like all politicians, they go with this list of stuff. Wow, I want to, now we got to talk about all these 17 things. And the Chinese just basically only want to talk about Taiwan. That was, yeah. the, that was the key. I mean, that was the key for them yeah. for getting the 72 um, rapprochement that Nixon is so famous for was the, you know, Nixon's, um, uh, one China policy that he signed on to. Um, they got all, they got everything they wanted out of that. And it, but that's so long ago, and it's still top of mind. And if Xi Jinping wants to be the guy to get this resolved on his watch, I don't see how he can do that diplomatically, given the state of play. So that would mean an invasion. Now, uh, that's not that easy to do. They're real big and real close and real powerful. Real close and real powerful. It's um, the Taiwan. Don't forget that the Taiwanese are fairly well armed too. Uh, the uh, remembering our Clausewitz um, uh, strategy always favors the defense in war. And third of all, it's an amphibious landing. It's not just the strategy favors the defense. It's like the hardest type of, of, of offensive to pull off. And if you want to get really technical, um, as I understand it from talking to somebody who, who knows the issue, says that the beaches where the Chinese would have to land are not on the western side of the island facing China and they're way around the back and it's very tricky. It's not, you know, it's it's, it's not going to be like Operation Torch in Morocco where the army essentially wades ashore and it's over. I don't mean to sell out anybody who's involved in one of the more contested parts of Operation Torch, but let's just say it wasn't Omaha Beach, okay? Um, this is this could be, as I understand it, a pretty a pretty tricky contested landing. Why not just bomb the hell out of him? Bomb him into submission. Going back to your Sun Tzu, you know, to win without fighting is best. To capture the enemy is the acme of skill in war, not to destroy the enemy. They want the island. They want it. It's part of China. They don't want to destroy it. They want it. They want to incorporate it into the motherland. And the people, too. Mm-hmm. And it's sophisticated technologies. Remember, Taiwan is a, is a in China's catching up, but Taiwan is a, is a, is a 
more advanced. It's much smaller, but those sectors that it has fully developed are more advanced than China. And it's got got high technology in a way like, say, Hong Kong, which is um, highly sophisticated economy. And very yeah. very rich per capita, yeah. but it's a, it's almost purely a service economy. Yeah, sure. It's financial services, business services, and tourism and things like that. Taiwan is making strategic assets in a way that China would that does not want to bomb out of existence. It wants to be part of China. Got it. Got it. Uh, economically, uh, between the two countries, U.S. and China. Well, I don't know. I think. Um, there, it's, what are we at? About twenty-one trillion GDP, and China's it's thirteen or fourteen. So, catching up. You know, at some point, will overtake as the as the world's largest economy. When it overtakes in terms of uh, purchasing power parity, you know, per, per GDP per capita, that'll be a long time further out from that. Uh, but getting back to that point, I, you know, we started to see this transition under Trump, and we didn't see it enough. And I think Trump actually missed an opportunity with the advent of COVID to basically say to the American people, look, we, we really need to have learned our lesson with all this outsourcing and get a lot of this stuff back. Um, because our economy, I think, is too weighted toward services and consumption and these kinds of things and, and, and needs to be reweighted back toward more manufacturing. Uh, and you know, you, when you say that to anybody who deals with the economy anyway, they just roll their eyes and think, oh, you naive twit. You know, that's impossible. Can't happen. It's over. All that stuff is forever behind us. I'm like, I, I don't know. I, 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 agree I, I read I agree with you. economic stuff too. And I'm not, I'm not at all convinced that that's, that that's true or has to be true. I often talk to my friend, uh, Gordon Chang. He wrote a book called The Coming Collapse of China. And I kid him every time. Okay. You wrote that, I don't know, 15 years ago. Where's the collapse? Is there going to be a collapse? Yeah. Can there be a collapse? I, golly, I, <laughs> Of course, there could be. I mean, you know, some obvious issues that China faces. The main one is demographic. The years of this one-child policy have created this incredible imbalance. You know, too few younger workers to support an aging population. Plus, because of sex selection, abortion, people who want boys aborting girls. There's a there's a real imbalance in the gender relationship, gender ratio, yeah. that. Um, it has put stresses on society. I mean, to be blunt, like people can't find wives and they, you know, they go through life unhappy because of that. And, you know, it's, it's a pressure cooker. Another, another point that I heard raised and I I find plausible, we'll have to see how this actually plays out is um, when almost every family from, for 30 years, 20 to 30 years is one child. You don't want your one child. The phrase that one hears, Children referred to in China is, is little emperor. Every household has a little emperor, by which they mean essentially a spoiled child because you're the only one. And mom and dad really put everything they have into you, right? Well, do you want that kid going to die on some beach in Taiwan? It's you know, it's one thing to send one kid in a family of six or three or whatever, but like everybody's got their only child. Doesn't necessarily you know these are these are could be a country that proves reluctant to go to war for that reason. Do they still want to go to Caltech or MIT for post grad in uh, advanced I, physics? I think so, although you have to ask yourself, as those institutions get woker and stupider, you know, okay. my wife went, okay. to, Cal- my wife went okay. to Caltech and she still gets their literature. Okay. And Don't tell Caltech, me. Don't tell me. Caltech was one of the last sort of holdouts that just, that just didn't practice any of the BS. Like, Don't if you came here, me. you were going to work 
like a dog and you were going to, you just, you know, you're, it's, it's a real sink or swim kind of place. They don't, they don't grade on curves. They don't grade normally. You got to get the answer right too, right? You got to get the answer right. You know, they have no problem giving a test in which 60% of the students get Caesar below or something. There's no grade inflation in the old days. And she gets to lit and, you know, we see these magazines and it, they held out for a long time, but they've gone totally woke. Amazing. Chinese. Amazing. I think the Chinese have no um, patience or tolerance for this. And the more they figure out that, like, yeah, you can go and, and it's prestigious and there's some value to the prestige, but you won't really be learning anything, the more they're just going to say, probably the hell with it. Doesn't That's, matter. This is where I wanted to go now. Um, and I, then I want to get into Fight 93 election but f- from there. But culturally, the difference. Let me just tell you what I said the other day and then let you expand on this. Uh, we were talking about American schools and the teachers and all that, and then the math now, you don't have to get the right answer, and the woke curriculum and critical race theory. And I said, we are having big fights about critical race theory, and it's being imposed in schools all over the country. Some parents are standing up. We are 37th in the world in math, 37th. China is first and uh, sometimes second, but usually first. Uh, and is not having this conversation about woke, which is the point you just made. And they're not going to. Uh, culturally, you know, who's stronger culturally? I mean, that, that's maybe not an easy question to answer. But who's cl- more clear-eyed about what they're doing as a country? They are, right? No question. I would say they're stronger culturally. I mean, okay. do I do I admire everything about their no. culture? Right. I mean, about ancient Chinese culture, sure. I, I think it's wonderful. I teach some of the ancient you know Chinese classics. Do I admire you know the, the Communist Party of China's approach to culture? No, but the fact that they are unified as a country and they're not spending all of their time tearing each other apart and attacking the history of their institutions and their government and attacking the majority of the people as fundamentally racist and evil and things like. They, they must. This is not a point original to me, of course, but they must look across the ocean daily and wonder: these Americans have gone crazy, or were they always like this and we just didn't notice? But whatever. I mean, how could you be afraid of us if you were China right now? I'd okay. I'd, I would almost want to okay. refrain from starting a war with us out of pity. Because you like these guys, they're too easy. I, I can't go play a single A team like that. I gotta, I gotta, you know. Okay. You see, I mean, this is. That. I mean, so this we're back to Lincoln. Uh, in a nation of free men, we live forever, die by suicide, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, this is the part that worries me the most. Am I right to be worried about this part the most? I mean, we talked about jets and uh, planes and, and carriers and economies, but is this the part that should worry us most, comparing ourselves to China? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, look, it, it, we would have to, we would, as a pure matter of military, you know, issues, I think we would have to greatly fear that if we got into a war with China, we would lose. I'm not 100% on that, but I, if I had to bet in advance, I would say we would lose, especially if the war is in, you know, their theater of operations as opposed to ours, somewhere close to ours. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just don't see how a nation that, Tearing itself up like this it can survive. I did lunch I today with some guys, and I've said this to people before, but I repeated it today. Like I, I know something about history. I've read a lot of political philosophy, and I'm, I cannot think of another example of a country in history, ancient world, medieval world, modern world, that just decided to tear itself apart like this. I, I can't. I, you know, countries they do crazy things and overreach and die. Like you know, they invade countries, invade Russia, and end up getting in a lot of <laughs> trouble for that. Don't invade Russia, folks. But countries that just 
just just just turn inward on themselves and rip themselves to shreds. I, I when has that ever happened? Like it's happening to us. I don't know an example. Here's a great uh, anecdote. Um, I just heard this on TV. Robbie Suave of the uh, Reason magazine said, "Oh, he said I just figured it out. Um, the mask is the MAGA hat of the left." And yeah. he cited an email by a well-known Democrat. Can't remember his name. Saying, "I'm not David taking." Hogg, I think. Okay, yeah. you're ahead of me. I'm not taking my mask off because I don't want anyone to ever think I'm a conservative. I mean, what the hell? What the hell? What the hell? Where? What are we doing? So I just said to Claude as we're sitting here talking, we go to civil war. There'll be one side will be not the red coats but the red hats, and the other side will have to be the black masks. And we are in this. I mean, I, this is my argument with Alan Gelzo. He says it's the worst division in the country since the Civil War. I said, it's worse than that. Civil War was about one issue. Yeah. This is about like a hundred issues. Yeah. No. Yes. Oh yeah. Flight yeah, ninety three election. Who wrote it? I did. <laughs> okay. Good. You're fessing up now. Good. What was your name? No, I that? said I, I, I was outed a long time ago. What was, and, the, uh, what was the name on the on the cover though? Decius. Decius, yeah, that's right. So where are we now? Uh, I remember Gary Lee Bauer, my undersecretary, who ran for president, Gary Bauer, said uh, we were meeting at the White House, at the, at the vice president's house, and he said, I love Trump. I think Trump's doing great, but is this just a, is this just a respite? And then when this is over, we'll be back yeah. and maybe even going down faster. Um, yeah. Is, is the Flight 93 analogy even more? Important today? I, yeah, I mean, I I, I I wait to be disproved on some point. I don't believe it's happened yet. Um, I, a lot of our, uh, I guess more yours than mine, um, friends on the right, and some of them my former friends, and some people I never had anything to do with, but they continue to to mock and ridicule the thesis of it, and you know. They, they remind me of Kevin Bacon at the end of Animal House. Remember that where everything's going hell? He's screaming in his uniform, "Stay calm! Everything is fine." <laughs> I mean, this is National Review, right? Everything is fine. Well, of course, these little problems still exist around the marshes. Like, no, I mean, Roger, whom I I, I I run so hot and cold on. Sometimes I think he's totally brilliant, and at other times I think, God, what a what an appallingly bad take from someone who who actually I know has some level of intelligence. But he did. He wrote something good. Recently, you know, responded to David Brooks saying, "Well, why are conservatives so cataclysmic, and why are they so pessimistic?" And you know, that's David Brooks. So, what do you expect? And of course, he says something like, "Everything is just fine, right?" And Dreher goes, "I like Brooks. Uh, uh, he's a friend of mine. I hope he doesn't take this personally." But what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> These are the reasons why we're in the state we're in. I thought, okay, yeah, Dreher. You know, Dreher, who can be, like I said. He put out a lot of bad takes and be really, in my opinion, very weak on a lot of issues, right? He got that one right. So are we going to survive? Are we going to make it, America? Well, um, I, I, I asked Victor that. Davis Hanson. He said, yes, we will make it, but we will be much diminished. I, uh, I, I don't know what make it means in that sense. I mean, there's, whatever happens to the currently constituted government of the United States, I expect there to be people alive on the North American continent, and they will organize themselves somehow. Whether they organize themselves as one polity in the territory that we now have, or more than one, I don't know. Um, but I don't think, I, I don't expect us to go back to anything like what America was in my childhood, much less my parents' childhood. I think right. our futures, whatever it turns out to be, is going to be grimmer than that. Because we're tearing ourselves apart, and because the bad guys are in charge. Um, it's it's. I think it's mostly because we're tearing ourselves apart. 
Um, we just, I mean, we, we have a, we have a regime that I, I just don't have any recollection of ever reading about in human history. Um, we have a regime that, that, that hates a huge portion of the people and sees them either as some, a resource to be despoiled or something to be despised. I mean, we have a regime that tolerated the, the opioid crisis. And when, you know, I mean, it's just one little anecdote. When academics studied it and figured out that there had been a decline, and these are both libs, you can read about it. I don't remember their names. I think I quoted them in my book. They, they discovered, you know, in demography that there had been a decline in white living, um, not standards, uh, life expectancy. Yeah, because, uh, yeah. And they tracked out the numbers really, very, very carefully. Yeah, and they said, this is an astonishing thing in a first world country that uh, that the majority uh, population, the majority race has actually seen a decline and everybody else's has gone up. And they couldn't publish it anywhere. And when they tried to publish it, people would say, we, you can't. You cannot write that. You just can't admit that this is going on. You can't write something that sounds like a defense of white people. And when it finally did get published somewhere, they finally get it in some obscure journal, they were savaged by their peers. Really? I mean, this is a regime that that hates some 60% of the population. I just don't, you know, China doesn't hate the Chinese. They hate <laughs> the Uyghurs. They hate the, the Uyghurs. They hate. They may. Yes, they hate the Uyghurs. I'm sure the Chinese. The, the Chinese mistreat a number of the minorities that they, from whom they have taken territory for sort of reasons of state to protect the, the what yeah. they consider their national interests in the heartland of China. But there's, there's just nothing like what we are doing to ourselves happening in the rest of the world, or as far as I know, has ever happened. I mean, Rome did not fall because a series of emperors decided that it hated the Roman people and was going to despoil yeah, them yeah, and despise yeah, them yeah. and insult them and and do every injury to them. It just didn't, that's not why it happened, but that's why it's happening to us. At least to me, that seems to be the number one answer. Did this come from the schools mostly? I think it came from the schools. I think it came, you know, I'm kind of a... I'm kind of a Straussian philosophic determinist on a lot of these questions. I think it's, it's, the, the power of a bad idea turns out to be much stronger than anybody could conceivably could think. Our elites definitely lost faith in the American ideals and American principles and American history and so on. Um, but we, so that was a, losing that was an onslaught in schools in the college. Oftentimes, losing faith just leads to apathy. So, getting back to the Roman example, you know. The, the the Romans of the second and third century AD, you know, they've lost faith in paganism. They've lost faith in the sort of imperial destiny of Rome. They don't believe the stuff anymore, and they've become hedonistic and apathetic to a large degree. The the, the layer two is the one that really is worrisome: is that they don't become anti-Roman. Right? They become too weak to defend themselves. They become too listless to take pride in themselves anymore, to stand up for themselves. Okay, and we definitely have a lot of that here. But we also we have an elite that just deeply despises the country and, and, and the majority of its people and sees its role as to despoil and attack them. Yeah. And, and they're, they're, they're vicious and predatory. Um, where did it all come from? I mean, look... Books have been, you know, highfalutin academic philosophic books have been written along these lines for a couple of centuries now. And, you know, I probably only get a handful of dozen or hundred readers a year, but the effects ripple out. 
Um, I think there's probably more to it than just that, but I think we also have to we have to trace this back to some of these some of these really pernicious books. These aren't life sustaining, life fulfilling books like you get in the Greek and Latin the, and the medieval the, classics. What are the three books or four books? Marx, the, Freud. Marx for sure, Freud for sure. I mean, but even then you have to trace this this real um, 20th century or even 19th century garbage back earlier. I would, you know, I would, I would consider Hegel and Rousseau okay. major problems. So, and they don't think that they don't. I don't think that they necessarily think that they're major problems. I think yeah, they think that they're yeah. fixing, they're yeah. fixing a problem that they've diagnosed. Yeah. But All every right. every fix tends to radicalize the original problem. All right, we need to go. Our last things. Um, uh, do you know uh, a book called Submission by uh, French? Yeah. Uh, yes. Hold I know it. I haven't read it. Okay, well, I, I have. Okay, thank God I came up with something I've read that you haven't. <laughs> I remember I had dinner with David Reisman at Harvard when I was up there, and a friend of mine said, when you're talking to Reisman, if you uh, say something he's thought about before, he'll keep nodding. The task is to say something that makes him stop nodding, which is a thought he's never had before. So I went through an entire dinner with his head nodding, and that would, that would be dinner with you. And then I finally brought up I brought up I brought up the Red Sox or something, and his head stopped. But that kind of was off the point. There's a phrase I remember from an article in the New Yorker. George Steiner wrote, "Odi profanum vulgus." Huh? I hate the vulgar crowd. That's some of it, isn't it? I mean, I just you know, if if the if the Americans love Disney World, we hate Disney World. If they like baseball, we hate baseball. Yeah. Although Disney is as woke as anything now. I no, mean, I know, I know. God knows, I know, I know. What was it in Caltech? What did she see? What did your wife see? What did you read? It just, they, they have like an alumni magazine that you don't even have to subscribe to. If they if they know you went there and they find you, they'll just send it to you yeah. for free. Yeah. And it's just, you know, for years she's been getting it and kind of glancing at it. She kind of has fond memories of of Caltech and, and how deeply weird it was, but it's also deeply serious it was. And we just noticed, like, they held out and they held in the last year or two, it's just turned. It's just turned, and they've just, they're just trumpeting their commitment to diversity and their commitment to equity and okay. all of this woke garbage. It's like, because, look, you're talking about the hardest subjects to study known to humankind, right? You, you, know, you need to find the geekiest, most focused kids, regardless of all of this stuff. Because nobody, if you're teaching it properly, nobody has a chance unless they put their whole energy into it. And as soon as you start focusing on other things, nobody's going to be able to grasp particle physics and quantum mechanics and stuff like that. Like, this is not critical race theory. This is not yeah, blah, blah, blah yeah. studies. These are these are real subjects that, that require massive amounts of brain power and work to possibly just, you know, to get a C in the old Caltech. And now they've just, they seem to have just decided... Now we're going with the flow. We're going with the we're going with the crowd. And Thomas Jefferson High School there in, in Alexandria, you know about that. TJ, yeah, I know about uh, that. TJ. In submission, the guy writes this is a radical Islamist takeover of France. Right. And the in the in a key conversation he says, We don't we don't care about the Ministry of Defense and the right. budget. We want the Ministry of Education. We yeah. want the Ministry of Education. We want that's what we want. Then we'll get it from there. So Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I just worry that I, you know, they say every anthropologist loves his tribe. I, this my tribe is education. I just worry that I think too much that it, too much comes out of it. But I'm, maybe, maybe I'm not under overstating it. It's pretty, it's pretty damn important. And I, you know, I visited all these schools, Michael, when I was secretary of education. I saw all this crap in the '80s up on the bulletin boards. And you know, you are the most important person in your life. You are, yeah, baby. What you feel is matters. It's not what out. And I said, we're going to pay a price for this someday. And um, yeah. 
Son of a gun, you know. I take that over what they're getting today, which is depending on your skin color, you're either oh. a wonderful person and or you're 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 evil. You're born evil, and there's nothing no. you can do about it. No, Steph then was just stupid. This is evil. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, thank you. You're the best. You're the best. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. That does it for today's show. Catch up on previous episodes of the show. Go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. <laughs>